The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Michelle Cassandra Johnson, is a licensed clinical social worker who describes herself as a social justice warrior, author, dismantling racism trainer, empath, yoga teacher and practitioner, and an intuitive healer. She's the author of Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World. Her newest book, Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief, is reviewed in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Michelle Johnson, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm very happy to talk to you. You raise issues about which I know close to nothing. And I learned a lot from the book, and I'm hoping to get some more clarification from you. You know, one of the things I loved about the way you structured the book is that you defined your terms right up front. So many times you pick up a book and the author's using all this, these terms and you're left guessing. Do they mean what I'm thinking? Do they mean something else? What, what are they talking about? But you don't do that. And I really appreciate that. That said, I, I want to go a little bit deeper into what you mean. So let me just give you an example and then an actual question. So you talk about the term white supremacy. And if I got it down right, this is how you define it. It's a quote, the idea or in parentheses, ideology, that white people and the ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and actions of white people are superior to people of colors and their ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and actions. So that now we're clear on what white supremacy is. And then in the next section, you define the term racism and you make four points, which I really found helpful. Racism is racial prejudice plus social and institutional power. Two, Racism is advantage based on race. Three, racism is oppression based on race. And four, racism is a white supremacy system. Now, it's the last one after we, you know, you define white supremacy as the idea that white people and their ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and actions are superior to everybody else's. That's how you understand white supremacy. And then you say racism is a white supremacy system. So I'm wondering if only white people can be racist. This is a a really good place to start. So the definition that you shared is a definition I learned from 
um, trainers over 20 years ago, dismantling racism trainers, and they became trainers I ended up working with for over two decades. And the definition is from critical race theory. So it is definitely a definition that I believe and work with. And there's critical race theory is all in the news right now and has been a body of work that's been around for quite a long time. And so the definition definitely implicates white-bodied folks. And sometimes what, what people get caught up in is, is there reverse racism? Or what is it when Black, Indigenous, and people of color are doing things to other Black, Indigenous, and people of color that seem like racism? So because of how uh, white supremacy created racism and designed a racial hierarchy, that definition does mean that BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous, people of color cannot be racist, and it does implicate all white-bodied folks in this white supremacy system. That said, BIPOC folks are implicated in this system, too, because we can collude with it and we can go along to get along. But more of what people witness when we are, when there's um, interracial racial fighting is, or things that look like racism, that's internalized racial oppression, which is different than racism. Right. Uh, that that makes sense. What do you call it when, I mean, before there were white people, you know, when, when there's, I, I don't know, I, I want to use the word racism, but based on this, I can't. So, so going back way back in human history, before there were Europeans, before there was white supremacy of any kind, because there were no white people, when everybody was basically in the Middle East, I'm thinking in particular, you know, brown or black in, in Africa, what do you call the oppression that they imposed upon one another? I mean, they enslaved each other. They had wars of genocide against one another. What do you call that? I mean, I think tribalism is the closest thing, although I'm not sure that's the appropriate word, but we were all in different tribes. So it's the word that's coming to mind based on what you described about the behavior. And then white was created to your point, what you named. Right. So, so I appreciate that because my next book is called Judaism Without Tribalism. And I use, <laughs> I use tribalism as opposed to tribe. I, I look <laughs> at them as different, but I use tribalism as the big enemy in, in that book. So if that's true, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but is that sort of built in to, to the human DNA or or actually, let me back up one second. Is that built into the male human DNA? This kind of tribalism, ethnocentrism, ultimately racism. You think it's just part of our makeup as, as, as a species? Well, this is a good question too. I think the trauma connected with what you described when you were asking about what word would we use, and I said tribalism. I think that um, had everything to do with a group being made inferior, it had everything to do with limited resources or the desire to fight over resources. And so perhaps that is in our DNA. And I also think we learn a lot about bias, about ourselves, about what the culture tells us about who we are and what the culture tells us about others. So I think some of it is maybe it's, I mean, I think it's based on trauma that we've experienced that's unprocessed and maybe that's what needs to be processed for it over time, ancestrally, to be passed down for us not to pass this on to future generations. And it's so old, right? It's so um, sort of baked in, embedded. And so I, I struggle with this because I think some of it is learned and some of it is really based on trauma and the embodiment of that and acting out that trauma on others. 
I mean, you, you mentioned uh, critical race theory a moment ago, and I know, like you said, it's it's in the papers all over the place. Everyone's ranting and raving about critical race theory, even though most of us haven't got a clue about what that really is. And I'm not even going to put you on the spot to have you define it for us. But I don't have a problem with, to, to the extent that I identify as white. I mean, I mostly identify as Jewish. Mm-hmm. And and Jews aren't white. There are white Jews, but Jews aren't any specific color. We come in all colors. Right. But to the extent that I do, I mean, not only identify as white, take advantage of white privilege, you know, all, all of that, I have no problem with being called, you know, a, a racist in that in that sense. That somewhere in my upbringing, I was trained to utilize whatever white privilege I could get away with. You know, to my advantage. I, I mean, growing up, the place I grew up, I was considered a Jew and couldn't join the country club because, mm-hmm. I, you know, we were Jewish. So there was, you know, that kind of anti-Semitism. But I know that, that in my family, I mean, my dad didn't know there were Jews of color <laughs> until I took him to Israel once in the 90s, maybe, maybe even in the early 2000s. And he met Jews from Iran. It just blew his mind. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> he completely identified not only himself as Jewish and, and white, but he identified Judaism and Jews with whiteness. When you are wrestling with people in, like in, in the yoga world, just to sort of take it out of the social justice area, but when you're wrestling with with, with people in the yoga world around the, the issue of whiteness and white supremacy and racism, does it play out differently in that Eastern yoga context than it might in some other? Well, I've only really practiced yoga in the West. So, and there's a whole conversation we could have about what happened to the practice of yoga when it came to the West and how it came to the West. And so I think it it, it is a different conversation than perhaps I might have in a space where yoga originated, right? In India and Africa, I'm sure there would be a, a different conversation, although there may be similar threats because of the casteism, caste system and because of tribalism and even who could practice yoga. I think what I find is that people, in particular white-bodied folks, have been conditioned not to see themselves as white and so not to see themselves as part of this larger system and not to understand how they're benefiting from it, even as I think this white supremacy culture is affecting us all and toxic um, and harming us all. So I think that's what I encounter, this like discomfort or resistance to look at how uh, one is implicated in this system. And the reason I invite people to look at it is to figure out what we want to do about it. If we can't look at it and see where we're placed and how culture is positioning us, then it's going to be really difficult to disrupt these systems. Oh, absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit because a lot of the book has to do with, and and your prior book too, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World. I mean, you deal with yoga. I want to talk to you about Bhagavad Gita in a moment. I know a lot of people of color who are Buddhists often say they feel uncomfortable in the mainstream, overwhelmingly white uh, American sangha, you know, the Buddhist community. Mm-hmm. What about in yoga? As a person of color, what was your experience in the yoga world? In my yoga training and many of the yoga classes and spaces I've moved through, um, and I went through training in 2009, 
people were not talking about social justice and yoga as much as they are now. I think the culture of the the industry is shifting some and what we're centering because I think we're shifting culturally as well and what we're centering and what we're struggling with and reckoning with. And so I didn't feel othered by my teacher trainer or by the people in the, the cohort. And I was very clear that we were talking about a practice focused on liberation and there weren't many people of color in this space or many people who had disabilities or many LGBTQIA plus folks in this space from what I understood about our cohort. And so that made me curious because I was a dismantling racism trainer. Once I entered into yoga teacher training, I'd been training and dismantling racism for a decade at that point or almost a decade. And so I had this awareness that oh, I'm entering into the spiritual practice and yet the way we're practicing it is exclusive. And so what does this mean? So people weren't you know, overtly being um, racist very much. I mean, of course, there were microaggressions that I experienced in in spaces and assumptions made about me because there wasn't there. You know, weren't many Black, Indigenous, and people of color teachers in my in my area. And again, I think that shifted some. And to speak to Atman on what you named, there also is this other side of colorblindness and bypassing spiritual bypassing where people believe they can transcend the relative truth and live into the absolute truth. And we can aspire to the absolute truth, but we have to change the conditions that are in place. And if we, if we connect with the relative truth, right, and what is actually playing out and happening, then we have to do something different. There's work that's required for us to, to get to the absolute truth. So that, that happens in spiritual communities all of the time and yoga spaces and in sanghas and many communities where people want to bypass our humanness, right? Our, um, the, the different ways we are, we are treated based on the identities we embody. Right. I, that, that's really well put. Cause that, I was going to ask you about that, that, um, this notion of spiritual bypass where, oh, you know, I don't, not only do I not see color, I don't see gender. In fact, I don't even see the world of Maya. I don't even see your, your manifest form. I only see you as, as Atman and Atman has no gender, no color. I mean, that kind of, I'm really stretching my, my traditions here, but in Christianity, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer might've called that some form of cheap grace. It's like, oh, this makes it easy. Mm-hmm. You're really Atman, and I'm really Atman, and now we can we can just uh, you know sing kumbaya, and not have to deal with anything. In as you put it, the relative world, a lot of this is a question that was going to come out more as a statement. It seems a lot of people go to mindfulness, meditation in general, different spiritual communities, and yoga for escape. But what I mean by escape is what you're talking about when you say spiritual bypass. It's just I got to get, I want to get beyond all this stuff. And the way I'm going to get beyond it is to pretend that I can get beyond it and not deal with the relative world. When you teach, how do you keep people, I don't know if the word is grounded, but, but let's just use that and you can correct me. How do you keep them grounded in the relative, even as they're opening up to the absolute? I love this question because you mentioned the Bhagavad Gita and there is a section in the Gita where Krishna, the guide, is talking to Arjuna, the warrior, whose dharma is to fight this war. And Krishna basically says, you're in a body and you have a responsibility in this body, right? You're in this experience and in this realm, and this is what you're meant to do and your spirit as well. And you need to work 
um, and and uh, devote everything to the larger self and to God in the, in the Gita. And so I love it because it's this, okay, I'm in a body, but I'm bigger than my body. And, and I think I teach that all the time because it's like we're in physical bodies and yet we're not our bodies. But we need to like recognize what our bodies are doing to other bodies as we remember our divinity. And so this is how I teach it, that we can hold both of these at the same time and live into like what we are most meant to do to respond to the things that are in place that prevent us from actually being one and prevent us from being free. And we need to remember we're spirit because if I think I'm just my body, I'm trapped in a lot of ways. This is my experience of the body. I'm limited. And when I remember I'm spirit, it's, it's like so expansive for me. And it gives me some more options and agency, even as I relate to the body and think about how I want to show up. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. I, I love the connection between what you're talking about in the Bhagavad Gita because, you know, you know um, Arjuna says, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to enter into war. These are my cousins. I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to deal with this. Um, I'm just going to leave it all behind. And Krishna says, uh, in a sense, that he has to do his dharma. And in Buddhism, dharma means one thing. But in the context of the Gita, dharma means duty. He mm -hmm. comes from a specific caste. Uh, he's warrior caste. He's got an obligation as a warrior, and that means he's got to go to war. And if you, uh, it sounds like the way you're thinking about this is somewhat similar. That uh, there's a a dharma attached to my whiteness, uh, attached to my Jewishness, attached to my maleness, and these are all constructs that I have to work through. And I don't mean work through to get out of them. I mean, work mm -hmm. with maybe, right? Mm -hmm. This is what I'm presented with. Maybe I can work through them to the absolute and free myself at least, at least to the extent of knowing their constructs and not, not taking them as something more concrete than that. But Krishna's advice to our, not advice, really command to, to, to Arjuna is do your Dharma. And that allows for what you're saying, that people have got to deal with the Dharma of being whatever they happen to be. Um, mm -hmm. And yet yoga can take them to something larger. I don't want to say higher, but, but larger. I want to include and transcend, to use Ken Wilbur, Wilbur language, to embrace and transcend the relative in the larger reality of the ab absolute. Is that, are we on the same page with that? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Not too long ago, we did an interview with Tracy Stanley. I don't know if you know her or not, but she's the yes. author. You do know because you both published with Shambhala. Mm -hmm. and, and she's the author of Radiant Rest, a really wonderful book on Nidra Yoga. And you mentioned Nidra Yoga as one of your personal spiritual practices. I was fascinated when she taught it to us or to talked about it with us. And I'd love to hear your take on it. So tell us a bit about your personal practice of, of or tell us what Nidra Yoga is and how you practice and what you gain from working with that specific practice. 
Yeah, Tracy's a, a good friend of mine and definitely one of my teachers. Um, so yoga nidra is often described as deep rest. And really, I think it's about deep rest to raise consciousness and to get to the truth of who we are and to understand the samskaras, the patterns that we embody and what we might want to shift and to receive information that is from the liminal space, from this, the spiritual space, instead of being limited by the body in the way I described. And so often my yoga nidra practice is between 20 and 40 minutes. Um, sometimes it's guided and, and eventually people get to the place where they guide themselves. Um, but it may be easier if people are starting out to, to be guided through this first deep relaxation um, and then rest, but not sleep. So we're awake, right? We're aware. And then to receive whatever information might need to come in. Or sometimes I like to talk about remembering. And I talk about this in Finding Refuge, like remembering to remember. I think that is what Yoga Nidra feels like for me, this place I can go to remember because the world is so loud and distracting. And the relative truth is really loud. And being able to find this place and really find the piece of me that feels untouchable in the sense of there's part of me, I always say this, that white supremacy doesn't get to take. Like it, there's part of me, it will not steal. Right? There's, And I think I get to that place when I'm moving through yoga nidra more than any other practice. Sometimes meditation, I'll get to that. And certainly ancestral work I do. But yoga nidra is really the place I can drop into remembering and connecting with this this part of me that is not just about the body, this part of me that... Um, and maybe it's my true essence, but this part of me that is untouchable. So the part that you might call uh, Brahman, Brahman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So you know, I, I related to Yoga Nidra. I related to your love of the Bhagavad Gita. And then there's beekeeping. <laughs> so my wife is into bees. And so I have some, you know, and, and we've tried hives, but this doesn't seem to work. We get hive collapse mm. happening around here. But tell us about what drew you to beekeeping and, and how does beekeeping help you find refuge and healing? It's so funny. I was in the beehive, one of the hives earlier today, because yesterday I discovered they were queenless and the hive can only survive for so long without a queen. And so I went to get a queen this morning and, and put it in the hive today and was watching them respond to the queen. What I'll say about beekeeping is that it shows me, and some people say this about bees, I hadn't taken a class. I had sort of thought about bees, but not really. I wasn't planning to get into beekeeping. And all of a sudden I did and had two hives. And now I have three hives here. And I've learned so much from the bees and I feel like they definitely came to me and I wrote about this in Finding Refuge because my mother was sick at the time and bee, bee mysticism would say that bees work between realms. So they're in the spirit realm and they're here and they also can help people transition. And my mother is alive now, but she was, she was close to transitioning. She was preparing for that. She was saying it. And I really feel like they came into my life at that I mean, very stressful transitional time um, to support my mother and to support me. So that's why I think they, they came in. And the thing I've learned, I mean, I've learned 150 things from the bees so far, and there are like thousands more things I need to learn from them. But I think about bees and community 
a lot and, and watching them in the hive and just remember that everything is for the hive. And that resonates so deeply because of so much of my work being about the collective, the collective good. Wow. That's very interesting. You wrote in the book, the hive, in a sense, has to choose the queen. I mean, you introduced a new queen into the hive, but they don't just go all hail the queen, right? I mean, t- it takes a right. couple of days for them to, to adjust. And when you go into the hive, are you wearing a, a bee suit? I don't know what you call it. It's I wear a bee suit. A veil sometimes is what people call it. I wear a bee suit and I want to get to the point where I don't have to. I'm like in a full body suit because when I first got them, I did not know if I was allergic to them. I just yeah. didn't know. And I've been stung about five times and this, the reaction has gotten a little more intense. So I'm still wearing my suit because I... I go in by myself most of the time, so I want to be okay and not in my yard with a bunch of bee stings because when one stings you and there are alarm pheromones going on, more can come in and sting you. And so I would like to get to the place where there's not as much distance between myself and the bees because, you know, many like beekeepers talk about them feeling that distance with the suit. And I'd like to have a, a deep enough relationship with them, a respectful enough relationship where I don't have to be so guarded. I don't know who I was watching on YouTube, but there's somebody, and maybe there's a number of people, who are beekeepers who don't wear any protective clothing. And they, when I saw it before reading your book, it it looked to me like it was a kind of Qigong, you know, that slow, Mm -hmm. or or Tai Chi, that, that slow Chinese movement. And the bees were just okay with that. They didn't have fear pheromones coming out. They, they were they were fine. I'm wondering if you feel a connection between your yoga practice and being with the bees, just, just the way you move with them, or, I mean, there is no bee pose that I know of, but <laughs> Not, no, but just the way you move and, and, uh, and, and interact with the bees, if your yoga helps you with a certain state of body-mind. It does. And I really need to deepen that practice more with the bees um, because sometimes I move too quickly with them and I can feel it and their vibration will change. The sound will change. And then I'll listen to that and get out of the hive, right? I try to pay attention to what they're communicating and they communicate all of the time in so many different ways. And I can definitely deepen my practice with them and, and move slowly um, I always say a prayer when I go out. I always I practice meta when I go out for them, really, um, and and create that loving relationship. And there's certainly more I could do. I mean, I think this is true of many relationships. There's more that I could do to deepen that practice of mindfulness. Yeah, I was speaking with someone yesterday. Her name is Dina Miriam. She's the founder of the Global Peace Initiative of Women. And we were talking about interfaith work that we both we both used to do sometimes together, but was a big part of our earlier careers. And she said, I am so done with interfaith. I'm much more interested in interspecies communication. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that is, that is perfect. There's a, a book. In fact, I, I just got another copy of it today in, in Judaism called Perak Shira, which means chapter of song. Mm. And the idea is that every species has its own mantra. And uh, it's usually from the Bible somewhere. They're all chanting psalms. And you could, mm. if you, you could look up what the bee's mantra is. You know, to, to us, we hear bzzz, mm. 
-hmm. but to them, they're actually, you know, saying some kind of mantra. And then you can work with a, a, a cantor who can read the, the musical notation in the Hebrew Bible, and you could learn how to chant the bee mantra and mm. then go go be among the bees uh, speaking their, their language. And I don't know how literally I want to take that, but I thought it was a, an interesting idea of, of doing interspecies. Uh, I don't know if you could do a retreat that way. I'm not, I have to figure out the <laughs> details, but it sounded like a, a fascinating thing. And what you're talking about is interspecies communication. I mean, I, yeah. I have a dog with whom I am very close and we absolutely communicate. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, we read each other. So your work with the bees is, is just, it's just, it seems to me it's part of the same work that you're doing. Even yes. with social justice, there, there's a fabulous poster I saw. It says the world without humans and it shows an earth that's just flourishing. Mm -hmm. And then next to it is a panel that says the world without bees, and it's just a barren hellscape. Right. So bees are much more important to the planet than people are. Mm -hmm. and, and we need social justice for, for the bees as well as other species. We are, I'm, I'm babbling, and we are coming up, we are actually over time. But you mentioned meta practice. So I'd like to close with that. You do that beautifully at the end of your book. So if you can just give us a quick definition of what meta is and then read the closing paragraph of the book, and that's how we will bring this conversation to a close. Sure. So meta is loving kindness meditation, and there are many statements that you can say, and often meta is, there are different rounds of meta. So meta for yourself, meta for friends, family, beloved, meta for someone who may be neutral to you, and meta for someone you are perhaps in a conflict with or where there's a challenge in the relationship and, and ultimately meta for all beings, loving kindness for all beings. And it's a practice I've, I've, I've worked with for quite a long time. Um, and it deepens our capacity to be compassionate. And I think it deepens our, it reminds us of our interconnectedness as well. So the, I end the epilogue with a, a prayer that includes um, some of what you might say in meta, and often the statements are about freedom, about safety, about happen happiness, about uh, decrease in suffering. So some of that comes through in this. May you be safe, happy, and free. May all beings everywhere be safe, happy, and free. And may our thoughts, words, and actions contribute to that safety, happiness, and freedom for all. May your grief be honored and seen. May our grief be honored and seen. May we expose and regurgitate what needs to be processed now so we do not pass on trauma to future generations. May we move through the loving act of being with our tender hearts and our grief. May we move through the loving act of being in space together, witnessing one another in our healing. Ashe, and so it is. Our guest today... Michelle Cassandra Johnson is the author of Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief. A review of the book appears in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Michelle's work at michellecjohnson.com. Michelle, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, 
Be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.